This is Momming While Feminist. We're here to have authentic, open-minded, hopeful, and maybe even helpful conversation about being a mom in a world where gender inequality and misogyny are everywhere. We want our parenting decisions to reflect our values as feminists, but that's not easy, so we need to talk about it. Welcome. Welcome. I'm Lisa. And I'm Lindsay. I have two sons, ages five and seven, and a daughter, age two. And I have two daughters, ages three and six. This week, we're talking about raising kids outside of the gender binary with our special guest, Neela Goshal. Hi. Hi. How are you? Wonderful. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Yes. Thank you for having me. Thank you. So Neela is a queer feminist mother, human rights researcher, and advocate for racial, economic, and gender justice. In her work at Human Rights Watch, she conducts research and advocacy on human rights violations affecting LGBTQ people in the Americas, Africa, the Middle East, and Asia. Neela defies many binaries, struggling with and simultaneously embracing being neither nor, both and. She is pansexual, meaning neither gay nor straight, biracial, meaning South Asian and white, bicontinental, rooted in the U.S. and Kenya, agnostic, as the child of secular parents of Hindu and Christian heritage, and the mother of multiracial third-culture children. She spent 40 years considering herself firmly female and uses female pronouns, but is no longer convinced she knows what that means. Neela is a recent transplant to Washington, D.C., and she also recently had a chapter published in the book Feminist Parenting, Perspectives from Africa and Beyond, where she wrote about the topic we're talking about today, Parenting Outside the Gender Binary. So wow. again, welcome. Yeah, we're really excited to have you on yeah. here today. Thank you. Very excited to be here. So one of the things we do to get, you know, that we always share, and we thought this would be a great way to get to know you and kind of break the ice, is to share our feminist crush, which can be basically anything that you love for its pro-feminist vibe. So I'll share. Mine is super personal to this week. I'll start and then, then we can take some turns. So with virtual learning, I think this is the first time I'm going to say this on the podcast. With virtual learning, I decided to homeschool my kids. And I'm, I'm an educator. So that one just felt right. And then I also decided to take a leave of absence at work. I really love my work. And my feminist crush is the um, women that I work with. Because the women at my job are being really inconvenienced professionally. And they've just really shown up for me personally. Like just given me unequivocal support. And really cheered me on in making a decision that was right for me. And so shout out to women who affirm each other and support each other through these kind of huge decisions. Amen to that. Congratulations on your leave of absence. Thank you. Thank yes. you. So Neela, what's your feminist crush? So I had to think about this one for a little bit because I'm not, uh, I'm not really caught up on pop culture. And I thought, you know, I have some authors and musicians, but they're probably like 5, 10, 15, 20 years old. I was thinking, what have I thought about recently that has captured my imagination? And I was on a webinar with this woman who, I, I might be mispronouncing her first name, but Kara Jabola Carolus. Um, she's the head of Hawaii's uh, Women's Commission, and she's the architect of Hawaii's COVID-19 Feminist Economic Recovery Plan. And I would say my crush is on her and on the plan as a whole. It is exactly what needs to be done. It steps back from COVID-19 and essentially says, what is wrong with our society so that we got into the place where we're in, in which people are being affected 
in the ways that they're being affected. You know, lack of childcare, meaning that they're unable to work, right? People losing their jobs and not having any cushion, um, complete industries being wiped out and people not having kind of sustenance to fall back on. And so this economic recovery plan provides income to everybody, a universal basic income, specifically focusing on people with small children, single mothers, free universal child care, support for older people's care, but also kind of refocusing the economy on industries that are sustainable, on sustainable farming and fishing. And I'm not sure how much it's been implemented. I know that it got started over the summer. And it's just amazing to see a government, a state government, taking such a transformative look at all of the social ills and how COVID-19 kind of brings them out and how they can be addressed. So that's what I'm very intellectually excited about right now. And I want to watch it and see how it develops. Yeah. I'm, I'm not what a hopeful thing to hear about. Yeah, absolutely. I'm Thank you for sharing that. Yeah. Okay. So um, my feminist crush is Dawn Wooten, who is the yes. nurse from Georgia, the whistleblower who spoke out about the likely mass hysterectomies in the immigration facilities. I mean, I think if you listen to this podcast, you've probably already heard about that just awful that that's still happening. We know that there's a long history of that happening in the United States to to Black, Indigenous, Brown women, incarcerated people, immigrants, disabled people. But wow, that's the woman who spoke out about that. Like that takes serious guts. So I just wanted to lift up her name and, and gratitude for her. And I hope that she's safe. I don't know what happens, what's what, you know, what her situation is, but yeah, so Don Wooten is my feminist crush of the week. Thanks, Lindsay. So to our listeners, as you know, we've started a Black Lives Matter naming practice in each episode where we call attention to uh, an incident or incidences of ongoing brutality and violence against Black people in the U.S. And this week, we want to lift up a couple of names. So the first is Stephanie Samuels. She is an Uber Eats delivery worker who was assaulted by a security guard in a Popeye's in Washington, D.C., basically because she went out the wrong exit. And then another person is Desiree, who I want to lift up, a black trans woman in DC who was recently shot and she's doing okay. And I'm not sure the context, but I just want to lift up her name because black trans women experience extreme violence by law enforcement and by other people in society. And yet their experiences are among the most invisible. So just want to lift up their names and we'll put links in our show notes of places to donate or take action. Okay, well, on to our main topic of today. So today we're talking about gender. We know that our assumptions and attitudes about gender influence our parenting practices and how we interact with our children. And we've invited Neela to help us unpack the tendency to think about gender as two distinct binary groups and how we impose this on our children and, and how we can try and do it differently. So Neela, tell us your story. How did you come to be an advocate for parenting outside the gender binary? Well, I think this goes back to, I mean, this goes back way back, right, to my understandings of myself as bisexual and then as pansexual, to my questioning what gender meant, you know, what the difference was between sex and gender, um, things we talked about in women's studies classes back in college. But all of it became more real to me when people that I knew started having children, before I did. And I came to see up close and personal how rigid the gender binary is and how it shapes 
the options that people have for how they raise their children. And, you know, so, so I observed over and over again, of course, the conversations we all hear, you know, what are you having? Oh, it's a boy. Oh, it's a girl. Um, of course, the gender stratified toy aisles in the supermarkets. And even, you know, heard from feminist people that I knew kind of an emphasis on people's gender. So, okay, girls and boys, or I'm going to pick up my boys and, and take them to school. I, I you know, I, I still hear these things today, constantly, daily. How are your boys? So kind of came to observe how much we comment on children's gender and was thinking about having a child myself. And then I heard about this family in Canada that was raising a child outside the gender binary. And they had made a decision that they were not going to tell anyone the sex of their child outside of a few immediate family members, and that they were going to let their child decide for themselves whether they wanted to be a she or a he or a they or something else. And this baby was called Storm. And I had a conversation at the time with my partner who I was talking about having children with and said, you know, I think this is really cool. You know, they're creating such options for this child in, in ways that most people don't even think about doing, even people who think they're going to raise their children with feminist values. And he said, yeah, you know, it's, it's kind of cool, but it seems kind of extreme. You know, it seems, seems like you're putting a lot on that child by making them a sort of outcast from, from social systems that we depend upon. And so, you know, we kind of talked about it over wine and moved on to other things. Had our child, the child was born with male genitals. We gave him male names in the kind of rush and frenzy of having a child, you know, didn't, wasn't thinking very much about feminist theory. I was thinking about a lot of other things. And a little while after having my child heard that a friend of mine also had had a child recently and that she was raising her child non-gendered. So this wasn't abstract anymore. You know, it wasn't a family that I had read about in the papers in Canada. It was somebody that I knew. And so that was, you know, really fascinating to me. And it made me feel like I had made a choice that was conservative, <laughs> um, of course, you know, mainstream, um, but that this option was was actually available to people like me and that I had made another choice that I had to kind of think critically about. And as my child grew older, um, you know, we, we used male pronouns, we continue to use male pronouns, etc. But he himself started asking questions. And so one of them, you know, when he was around two and a half, he said, is me a girl? And I wrote it down at the time. So I know he said, is me a girl? He was learning how to speak, learning grammar. And I had to stop and think. And I was really glad that my reaction was, I don't know. What do you think? Because I know that the automatic reaction would be, well, no, sweetie, you're a boy, right? Um, even, again, for people who, who feel that they're raising their children feminist. And he said, you know, well, this neighborhood kid says that I'm a girl because of the color of my bike. And I said, well, okay, you know, you can be a girl and have that color bike or be a boy and have that color bike. The color of your bike doesn't define you. You define you. And so we started having those conversations and we had them repeatedly for a couple years in which he questioned his gender, other people's gender, you know, what the whole concept meant. Did 
having long hair mean that someone was a girl? You know, and we pulled out photos of Bob Marley and other people to show that long, long hair didn't mean that someone was a girl. And, you know, him asking, so what does it mean that someone is a girl or a boy? And, you know, I realized that the questions that he was asking as a small child were questions that most adults don't ask themselves. <laughs> and so, you know, as things stand now, I have, I have two children, one who's kind of jumping around behind me, I think pretty much identifies as a boy, but we keep things open about what that means and that that can change. Bye. And the other one who's four, you know, kind of goes back and forth, says that, that they're a boy, that they're a girl, changes their style every day. And it's so important to me to embrace them in that. And it's also very clear to me that I'm not making the most radical decisions in terms of rejecting the binary altogether and how I talk about my kids, but I'm making decisions that people are perceiving as, as pretty radical. And, and I find that strange and unnerving that creating this open space for children to think about gender is, is fairly extreme and it shouldn't be. It's interesting when I, you talked a little bit about some of that in your, in your chapter and one of, the, one of the things that has stuck out to me since I read that is like referring to kids as like my boys or my girls, because I do that a lot. <laughs> and like, and I was like, but they both identify as girls. So is that okay? But also to what extent am I then like pigeonholing them? Into right. That? And they probably both thing. identify as white, for instance. I know yeah. that, you know, you can get on shaky ground by comparing a race and gender, but you know, if we think of any other characteristic that kids have, we don't say, okay, my whiteies, <laughs> you know, okay, my white kids, okay, my left-handed kids, yeah. you know, let's go get on the bus. It's gender that we pick out yeah. and that we reinforce daily. Over Whereas and over and other over. characteristics we may tell them, you know, oh, you're white, you're black, you're curly-haired, you are tall, but we don't remind them of that in our language every day. Yeah, that's so interesting. I hadn't thought about it to that extent, yeah. It's deep. It's very intense. It's very rooted in, in the English language and not in, in every language. And I'm trying to understand why linguistically English is so emphatic about gender. Some other languages are more emphatic about gender, like languages that have gendered pronouns. Then it becomes even more difficult to pull yourself out of that in talking not yeah. only about children, but about like the table. But then other languages are not gendered at all. And yeah. also are much less gendered in the way that they name people. This is bringing up so many feelings for me, which I knew it would, but I'm just like, whoa. All right. In case we have listeners who have never thought about parenting outside the gender binary, like what do you mean by gender binary? What does parenting outside the gender binary look like to you? Yeah, and I'm going to take a step even further back than that, and I'm going to talk for a minute about sex and gender because these are also not things that everybody thinks about. So if we start with sex, people are born with a sex, which is defined as either female or male. And the way their sex is determined, the sex that's assigned to them, is based on a combination of their genitals, their hormones, and their chromosomes. Sometimes, for instance, babies are ambiguous in their genitals, and then doctors try to determine what their real sex is, right? These are intersex people. And so there's this category called sex, which is largely but not exclusively binary, in that the majority of people, maybe 98%, 
fit into a category of female or male where their genitals and their chromosomes and their hormones all line up neatly. A small category of people, a small percentage of people don't, and they're intersex. And so I think it's really important to remind people that even sex is not actually binary. Now, on top of that, we've constructed gender, right? So gender is the codes of femininity or masculinity that we determine go with being biologically male or female in in a society. And I think, you know, we're familiar enough with transgender people that there is at least some degree of acceptance that people can transition from the sex that they were assigned at birth to a different gender. But we are much more used to the idea that if you're going to transition, you're going to transition from being a man to a woman or from a woman to a man. And I think it's trans people who have really gifted us with the concept of non-binary, right? Because trans people have brought, I think, into this discussion of gender, the creativity around, if I move away from being male, does that mean that I have to be a woman? Mm. Or is there something else in between? If I move away from being female, is my only choice to be a man, really? <laughs> or is there something else? And, and that something else has been found, I think, in, in, in other cultures centuries ago, and in our, you know, Western American culture, more recently in that, you know, you have people now who identify as non-binary and who reject the idea of being female or male. So when we talk about binaries in children, I think, you know, when we talk about the binary, the idea is that your child is going to fit into one category or the other, and that the sex is going to line up with the gender. Or, you know, even if the sex doesn't line up with the gender, that at some point in their life, they will clearly identify as female or male. And I think... (laughs) I'm having a fort built around me, which is not what I expected at like 9.30 p.m. And the, so the concept of, of non-binary, I think, is that you don't have to choose. And it's not a natural idea that you have to choose. In fact, these categories might not even have much meaning at all. Mm. Isn't even like the concept of biological sex almost being being debunked a little because... Because so like in this whole, the whole conversation around transgender and like bathrooms, you have politicians trying to hang on to this concept of biological sex like that, or even like some of the turf stuff like JK Rowling, like you're not a real woman if you're not, if your sex isn't female. So in my field, which is human rights, LGBT rights, we normally talk about sex assigned at birth. Yeah. Yeah. Which is a recognition that even the concept of biological sex is not as firm as we believe it is. Yeah. Right. Biology is complicated. Biology includes, you know, our hormones, our feelings, the neurons, you know, flashing in our brain. Um, And so, you know, it's not necessarily just limited to our genitalia. And even there, people are not as clearly divided. But yeah, I mean, the, you know, the, the kind of type of thinking that you're talking about is what I call gender fundamentalism. Mm, The idea that genitals and gender must line up yeah because if they do not the patriarchy is threatened right there's no rigid definition anymore of what it means to be a man or a woman and a lot of people find this really challenging and so you know i mean trans people have been recognized in some countries for 
decades, a little bit more recently in the US, but I think Sweden was 50 years ago, Sweden recognized that trans people were, you know, could change their gender on their official documents. And so there's been a lot of progress made in that regard that gender fundamentalists are trying to push backwards at this point. Mm. But I think, you know, what I'm thinking about and talking about in terms of moving into a shift to thinking about things beyond the binary is even in some ways kind of a step beyond in that, you know, not only do I think that we should embrace the idea that people should be able to change their gender on their documents, but that we should question what gender means at all in raising our children and in other aspects of our lives. Yeah. I mean, is it a silly question to ask why? Yeah. Um, no, it's not a silly question. Um, <laughs> So in my work, I come into contact with many people for whom the binary doesn't work. And the fact of the binary not working for them has served as a justification for fundamental violations of their rights, for physical violence, for discrimination, and so when something like that is happening, when someone is subjected to violence and discrimination because they don't fit into a clear binary, we need to think about how to establish not only systems in terms of the law, but systems in terms of our thinking that will protect those people's right to exist, right? So what I'm thinking about is how do we create space for everybody's right to exist and to be who they feel they are internally. People who are cisgender, who identify with the sex they were assigned at birth, which I would consider myself as falling into, even though I said in my intro, I'm not sure what women means anymore, but I was comfortably raised as a girl, um, comfortably became a woman, and you know, didn't have reason to question that much and that's actually an extraordinary privilege. And for people who don't have that, you know, I think we owe something to them to create space. So, and, and I believe that has to start, you know, at birth or before birth, right? In the womb, creating that space for people to be whoever they want to be and not to force them into an identity that they later have to do so much work and summon up so much courage to, you know, to change, to develop into who they, they really are. Yeah. Thank you for explaining that. I, I just would like to kind of follow up with that because one of the things that I'm thinking about too, and I, I think you could probably speak better this than I can, is just even if you are cisgender, we would all benefit from having less of a gender binary. Exactly. So kind of my first response to that is, what does it mean to be really cisgender, right? Because we, right. Uh, I'm making assumptions, but the, the three of us in this Zoom room probably feel more comfortable as cisgender people because of the space that the generation of feminists be before us created for what it means to be a woman, right? If being a woman meant, you know, I don't know, wearing a corset or having to stay home all the time and have eight babies, you know, maybe we would so be true. questioning whether we were cisgender. So space around what it means to be a woman or be a man keeps changing. So even cisgender is a category that needs to be subject to question. But yes, the, I think the point is that everybody would benefit from 
not having their options closed off. And that's what I see happening to children. And in the way that I'm raising my children, what I'm trying to do is not close off options. Mm -hmm. So if my child says, I want a pink swimsuit, I'm not going to say, you can't have a pink swimsuit. Let's go to the boys section. Right? I mean, sometimes I will, to be honest, because I'm a member of this society and I'm not beyond, you know, kind of fearing social pressure. So there are occasions where I find myself kind of reining my children in from their full gender creativity in some ways. But I try to be really, really cautious about when I do that and try to create as much space as I feel comfortable and safe doing. And I think that if everybody did that, we would just have such wonderful fluidity around, you know, what all of our children played with, how they interacted with other people. You know, you just, you watch, you watch it get shut down in mm. children. And, and I don't want that to be shut down. You mentioned earlier how we need to, that our children deserve to, I can't remember what it was you said exactly, but like starting from birth, not to be like pigeonholed into these genders. Yeah. So like, can you give us an example of how to do that? So like not having a gender reveal party. <laughs> number <laughs> one. one. I mean, I, I'm a big advocate, you know, and obviously everybody does what's comfortable for them, but I'm a big advocate of not finding out the sex of your child while you are pregnant. And one mm -hmm. of the reasons for this is because of this remarkable study that I read and I haven't found it since. So if any of your listeners find it, please let me know. But there was a study done where researchers asked women to describe the kicks of their baby, of their fetus. And they had categories of people who knew that they knew that they were, I'm putting this in quotes, um, but I'm going to use uh, gender terms, people who knew that they were having a boy, people who knew that they were having a girl, and people who did not know the sex of their baby. And what they found was that people who knew that they were having a boy tended to say, you know, oh, you know, he's got such fierce little kicks. He's a real tough one. People who knew that they were having a girl would say things like, oh, she's got the sweetest little butterfly kicks, you know, just these little lovely little tickles in my stomach. And people who did not know the sex of their baby gave descriptions across the board that after their babies were born did not match up. So in other words, the people who said, oh, my baby's giving tough little kicks did not match up with those who ended up giving birth to boys. So in other words, when we know the sex of our baby, we begin stereotyping it before it's even born, right? So that's pretty deep. Like we, yeah. we falsely, we have like false consciousness around our baby's kicks, yeah. And how hard or how gentle they are based on what we think the sex of our baby is going to be. So I think it's great not to find out <laughs> so that yeah. you don't, you know, you don't subject yourself to those stereotypes. And I think, you know, obviously avoiding all the kind of gender, gendered, you know, commercialism and dressing your child from a very early age into whatever clothes, you know, into all colors, right? So my kids all had pink onesies. My kids both had pink onesies. I also have made a habit of not correcting people when they misgender my child. And that was true from when they were, you know, a few weeks old. And, you know, they were both kind of pretty. So if they were wearing anything that wasn't blue, people would say, you know, oh, what's her name? I used to get that a lot. They both had a lot of curly mm -hmm. hair and things like that. Oh, what's her name? And 
I didn't say, oh, actually, it's a boy, right? Because I don't even know, honestly. You know, I don't know if this child is going to grow up to identify as a boy. The other day, I went to have some outdoor, socially distant drinks with two queer activist friends, and my younger child was wearing a dress. And so one of these people hadn't met my child. One of these people I hadn't met before, actually. One was a friend, and the other was a new person in our social circle who instantly started calling my child she. And this child is anatomically male and most of the time kind of considers himself a he to the extent that a four-year-old can articulate this. But I didn't correct her because she's not necessarily wrong. And even if she is, it doesn't matter, right, at this point. So I think those are some of the things that we can do from early on to just kind of create the space for ourselves and for other people. Yeah, it's interesting with for my first child, I we found out that she was anatomically a girl and then we told everybody and had the baby shower and I was like totally overwhelmed with all the with all the pink and frills and everything so for Amelia we didn't find out and that was the main reason it's Um, liberating yeah yeah of course we we also chose our names are are gendered as well but yeah I, I did make that that choice Lisa what do you think about that so first of all I think one of the things that comes up for me when I hear you talk Neela is this like it's as much about like catching our own stereotypes and biases that we've been raised with, right? As it is about like how we then talk to our children. That really resonates with me and like put off, you know, the gender binary as long as you can for your own sake. It's, it's, yes. it's just really interesting way of framing it. So I really appreciate that because I think, I think that's a great practice, you know, as my own like thinking has evolved. Right. And wishing it evolved faster to keep up with my kids who of course are like light years ahead of me in that amazing, creative, accepting way of thinking about gender. Because they do start limiting themselves, right? Peer pressure kicks in. And and so for my older child, that happened in kindergarten. So in pre-K four, which was the first year that he did here in DC, he still felt comfortable I mean, it's actually very interesting. He asked for a dress, but he didn't want to wear it to school. So he had a dress. So he he was limiting himself in some ways based on perceptions that he drew from society. But he still wore, for instance, pink sweatpants. And then when he got to kindergarten, a couple of weeks into kindergarten, I said, do you want to wear these sweatpants? And he said, no, because the girls will say that I look like a girl. So I thought that was interesting. I mean, first of all, that it was the girls who were doing the gender policing. I mean, that might not always be the case. That might just be the case with, you know, particular girls in his class. But second of all, that it was in kindergarten that I felt like a lot of that really kicked in hard. Yeah, same with me. When kindergarten was when I really started noticing the, like, gender divisions, that my daughter was really vocalizing them and, like, noticing them. And, and yeah, same timeline for me. And you mentioned bathrooms earlier and kind of the trans, uh, you know, the, the hysteria around trans people going to the bathroom. But I think kindergarten, at least in our school, is where the bathroom binary starts. Oh, yeah, you're right. Because before that, they share a bathroom inside the same classroom. Right. So boys line up to go to one bathroom and girls line up to go to one bathroom. And you have to be in one line or the other. So, right. you know, and it's very clear who's in what line. Yeah. Well, one of the reasons why what you were saying earlier was bringing up so many feelings for me is because I remember the moment where my son was was first like ostracized for 
not conforming. And um, that was really painful. I'm sorry. We'll give you a moment. Oh, Lisa, I know this has been really hard. No, it's okay. I'm really glad we're talking about it. Well, I know one of the questions you probably have for Neela, because this is what you struggled with, right? Was like, and I think you still probably beat yourself over this too much, is that you didn't say something to the parents beforehand. Right. I mean, if I had to offer any advice for a parent, it would be to err on the side. Me personally, from my own experience, obviously I'm no expert, but it would be to not like hope it all works out. Like you go into some of these spaces thinking like, it'll be fine. Maybe there'll be a little, maybe there'll be some conversation, but like, I can't protect my child from the world completely. But I do wish I had been like, hey, we're joining preschool. Just so you know, my son is going to wear unicorn shoes. He's going to want to be Princess Leia. Please make sure you talk to your kids in advance. Because after the fact, when I finally called some parents, I was like, hey, your kid told my kid that he couldn't be Princess Leia. The parents were like, oh, shit. And they had those conversations with their kids. And I think they were grateful that I had said something. And I just wish that I had said something earlier. Yeah, that's right. I think most people don't want their children to bully other people, but they also are unwittingly transmitting ideas to their children. And this is not to say that these parents are, you know, sexist or homophobic people, but they're transmitting ideas that are part of the society that we live in that cause children to think that it's acceptable to limit people in these ways. And I think parents, for the most part, are rational enough to kind of take a step back and say, wow, you know, it's actually not okay for you to go in there and impose these views on another child and these views that you even haven't even thought through that don't make any sense. Right, right. And I think the other thing that what you're saying really brings up for me personally is that like the way you described it was so, so helpful, right? Because there are like the gender fundamentalists and then there are the people who maybe have like started to accept the idea of there being transgender people but that's still the binary. And I think based on my experience, like one of the very first things I read is that when I realized that my, you know, son was going to be gender nonconforming, one of the very first things I read was that, you know, parents had a tendency, like even accept to like want to be so accepting to then like force their child into a transgender role when of course like gender socially constructed, it's all bullshit. And so I was conscious of it, but like even my own evolution and understanding, like I've seen myself, right, like let go of more and more and more. And I don't even like see it the way you do, or I haven't learned as much as you have, you know, and I haven't caught all the ways that we gender. And I mention that because I do worry that I really tried to be like, there's girl stuff and boy stuff and it's cool and we can like it all and you can be a girl and da, 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 da. But, like, maybe if I had not presented it as, like, you can be a girl or a boy, but been, like, boys, girls, who cares? It's not real. Then maybe my son wouldn't be, right now, what he is, which is so defensive of gender. So, like, in what I've seen in the course of him being, like, interacting with society is to be, like, in our family, he's the most defensive of what it means to be a boy. He's the most, like... I'm not a girl. I won't approach girl stuff. Don't at all misconstrue me from girls. He calls out his brother for doing girl stuff all the time. That's obviously really painful to see. And I just, 
I think it's not too late to start, you know, just throwing in some new ideas. I mean, there's still babies in the grand scheme of things, right? And what's important is just loving them for who they are. But I think that creating that space and embracing that fluidity can help kids understand that they don't have to be on one side or the other. Because being on one side or the other entirely isn't natural for almost anybody. Yeah. So how do you talk about non-binary with your children? Because I know that I've seen you say things like your kids actually know what not non-binary is. I'm just, I'm just now starting to try and introduce that language to them. And yeah, so I'd love to hear from you, like how, yeah, how you talk to them about what non-binary and gender fluidity and all of that stuff is and what it means. So there's a wonderful book called They Call Me Mix, which is a bilingual book. And it's mix is MX. And in Spanish, it's called Me Llaman Maestre. And Maestre is a Spanish non-gendered term that has come up with this generation of um, of non-binary or gender questioning activists. So maestra, maestro are the typical gendered terms. And so this book was written by a non-binary bilingual teacher to explain to her, to, sorry, <laughs> see, there I go, gendering. <laughs> it's so easy. Uh, the person's name is Lourdes. And um, is that the book that is Chiban showing it right now? Oh my gosh, Chiban. Nice job. That's awesome. Yeah. So (laughs) listeners right now, Nila's child, Jaman, is showing us the book. Yes. A little other co-host. It's such a wonderful book. And so I read that to them because I know a couple non-binary people, but, you know, my kids may have interacted with them once or twice. Most people I know consider themselves within the binary, even if they might kind of have questions about it the way that, that I do. So there are some books like this that I think are helpful. And and then, you know, I kind of bring it into conversation. And I, you know, I try not to do it in a in a kind of forced way, but you know, I'll I'll tell stories and I'll I'll make a character a they, you know, so like the three bears, you know, there might be like sometimes there's a mama bear and a mommy bear, and then there's a there's a baby bear who's a they, right? Or you know, things like that. Just kind of mixing up the the children's stories and introducing characters. And, and so another thing that I've been kind of pointing out in books is that I will point out when there's an absence of female characters. So I know you talked about this on one of your previous shows, and, and I mentioned as well that animals are almost always male. And sometimes we'll finish a great book and I'll say, you know, I really liked that book. The only thing I didn't like about it was that there didn't seem to be any female animals in the book. And I may have said at one point, you know, and there weren't any non-binary ones. I'm not sure, but I know that one time Chiman said, and there wasn't anybody non-binary in that book. I just thought, victory, (laughs) you know, it's sinking in. The idea that um, we might not know that many non-binary people, but when they aren't represented at all in what we're reading or what we're seeing on TV, that, you know, there might be a problem. Yeah. Yeah. And we also do talk about how people do transition. So one of the questions he asked me when he was young that I wrote that essay about was, you know, can some boys become girls? And I think that was really something on his mind because he wasn't sure how he identified and he wanted to create that space for himself. But we also talk about now how, and this is again, just in the last year or so, 
we talk about how some boys become non-binary people and some girls become Mm. non-binary and that's okay. And so how do you, what about talking to other parents? So like thinking about the example Lisa gave where she had to, you know, reach out to parents. And I know for me, there have been times where I've seen adults say things to say a, a boy wearing a tutu or whatnot, and I've spoken up. But yeah, how do you, what tips do you have or like for speaking up to parents? So talking to other parents, I mean, I haven't had that many interactions with parents who have been critical or who have expressed kind of extreme judgment. You know, I have had a couple of conversations with parents who are, and, and this was more, you know, when living in Kenya than when living here about, you know, oh, but your child should, should have a blue bike. You know, why does your child have a purple bike? And then, and that's a different cultural context as well, right? That's a cultural context in which I think there's been less kind of social space opened to have conversations about these things. And so there's, you know, less familiarity with talking around about, you know, trans issues, for instance. So there in, in our neighborhood, which was very heavily Kenyan, um, not an international community, I did have these conversations and said, well, you know, my child is going to have the bike that they want. And also they're going to have the bike that we got, you know, cheap used because I'm not going to go out and buy a new bike just because it's blue. So I, you know, I've tried to kind of naturalize it just, well, Mm -hmm. this, you know, this is who my child is. This is what they want. You know, don't you think that if a child wants to wear a color, they should wear that color. But yeah, I think I, I think I've been lucky again, you know, this is kind of now being in DC, kind of in a liberal bubble and living in, a, you know, being in a school community where families are are pretty diverse in many ways and understanding. I wanted to mention one interaction, which was when last year there were cheerleading was offered as a kind of sport after school and the after school program. And I got a message from the PE teacher, an email that was saying that said, you know, I just wanted to let you know that your child has signed up for cheerleading and I wanted to make sure that that's okay with you. <laughs> and this was someone who doesn't know me and doesn't know my politics and that, you know, I'm a queer activist and I work on these <laughs> things and that of course it's okay with me. And and I approached her and said, you know, I thought that message was a little bit strange. Do you send that to everybody about every after-school activity that their child signs up to? And she said, oh, no, no. You know, she said, I totally, I I think it's wonderful. But, you know, I just wanted to make sure because I didn't want any parents kind of coming in here and getting upset about what after-school activity their kid was, their kid is doing. And I said, well, if you were offering soccer and a girl signed up for it, would you check to make sure her parents weren't too patriarchal and didn't think that she could, you know, should play soccer after school? And she said, oh, well, no, you know, I hadn't thought about it that way. And so I think this was a case of someone who didn't think that they were doing anything problematic and they were trying to avoid conflict. But in fact, they were reinforcing Mm -hmm. a problematic norm. And so, you know, that kind of thing I try to bring to people's attention and say, you're treating this differently than you would treat kind of other activities. And that in itself can isolate and stigmatize a child. It's interesting to me how much a lot of the stories that you all are sharing, I don't have as many similar examples of that because if one of my kids who both at this point identify as girls 
um, and are anatomically girl, female, if they dress quote unquote like a boy, like no one's going to say anything because it's like acceptable for girls to be quote unquote tomboys. But how, so like how the patriarchy, the harm that it causes to, yeah, the different types of harm that it causes to boys, to young boys, and then how it changes over time as they get older. I don't know. Do you know what I'm trying trying to say? Absolutely. As much as in many ways our society is harder on girls and women, it is harder, and I think I can say this objectively, on gender nonconforming boys than it is on gender nonconforming girls. Yeah. Because feminists have carved out the space for girls to to be girls in so many different ways. Yeah. Whereas what it means to be a boy or a man is still much more rigid. Mm-hmm. And and I think that hurts boys and men. Yeah, and it also shows how cuz you mentioned earlier how girls are complicit in this. They are reinforcing those gender norms and they are telling boys that they can't dress like girls or have hair like girls and how this this feminism this binary feminism you know we're teaching and it's made me think about all these some of these books I have about you know girls and girls you can do whatever you want and girls can be this and girls can be that are well intended in terms of like female empowerment but they're actually with so much focus on girls and what girls can do they're almost just like reinforcing even though they're trying to show like this broad range of everything that girls can do they're still talking about kids as girls they're still like reinforcing that binary category I think they're necessary because I think obviously girls are still marginalized and they need those alternatives but I think that shouldn't be the only story right Mm -hmm. the non-binary story has to be told as well as well as the story I mean you know, there are books like um, Julian is a Mermaid. I think you talked about that on, on your show that I listened to. Yeah, I did. And then it came up again in our one that just came out with Laura's little bookshelf. She, she, uh, we just had one that came up about diversity in books, and she recommended that book as well. I love Julian is a Mermaid. So those are so wonderful yeah. because we have to tell the story as well that boys can be whatever they want. Yeah, yeah. I think one reason why there might be less space for gender nonconforming boys is because we devalue things that are female. Yeah. And so it's okay if female, like it's okay if girls want to be like boys, of course they do. Boys are so awesome. Yeah, no, I think that's absolutely true. But it's just, but and and the punishment is so real. Yeah. Yeah. And I just wanted to add that that's borne out in my work as well, cross-culturally. So for instance, in the Middle East and North Africa, there's now a growing trans movement and I've interviewed trans women and trans men in Middle Eastern countries and a a number of the trans men that I've spoken to have said yeah you know when I told my family that I was a man you know yeah there were some people who had a hard time with it but there were others who kind of patted me on the back and said okay you know join the club right the the men in the family and so there is a kind of you know a, a kind of boys club that is then extended to welcome in people who transition from female to male, whereas trans women in the Middle East and North Africa have it very, very hard and are extremely ostracized. So it's, you know, yeah, something in which they are seen as abdicating their male privilege, which is then 
you know, bringing shame upon the family and, you know, is severely sanctioned. Yeah. And like the flip side of that coin of like, I'm not going to abdicate my male privilege is like, I'm going to develop this toxic masculinity. Uh, at least that's what I see in like the reactions in my own son is like, I'm not, I'm going to reject girl stuff. And then I'm going to embrace like, I feel he'll be like, I love a fight. And I'm like, what are you even talking about? Like, that's so not even you. What are you saying? Yeah. Yeah. On the other hand, they can also, my four-year-old loves a fight and loves a fight in a tutu. <laughs> Just like, right. Like legit loves a fight. Yeah. Like legit. Yeah. But it's confusing. Yeah. And, and the flip side of that being that I think some parents do kind of too early on sort of say, okay, my child is clearly trans. When, no, your child is three. They're not clearly anything. Give them space to figure out who they are. Right. But I feel like, at least in my experience, if you are, if you're like trying to create space for a child to be non-binary, then a lot of people are like, you're trying to turn your child trans. And and he's too young. You know, and you're like, no, no, no. Yeah. And you're brainwashing your child. And then it's kind of like, oh, okay, so you're not. Right. <laughs> right. right. <laughs> like giving them all pink stuff um, or all blue stuff. <laughs> you're not brainwashing your child. You sure? Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I think yeah. the only other thing I would love to get your thoughts on is like, what do you, how do you make decisions about, and this really resonated with me because it's something I'm personally grappling with. Um, you made it. You made reference at one point to like sometimes, you know, if you want the pink swimsuit, I say yes, and sometimes, like I'm just not there, or it's just not right, or we're buying whatever because you know it's a lower price. Or there's a million reasons we make these decisions every day. But I'm curious, like, like what do you do when you butt up against your own fear? Yeah, I guess I would say that sometimes I try to challenge myself and push myself and let my child guide me by their needs and wants. And sometimes the fear wins and that's okay because we're not super people, right? We're not superheroes and, and we live in a social context and every day we make compromises about a million different things, right? How environmentally friendly are we going to be today? Um, You know, how much are we going to stand up for racial justice today? How much are we going to um, opt out of corporate, you know, um, capitalism today? And how much are we going to push the gender binary today? And we are busy, hardworking, and often exhausted people, and we don't always have energy for all of it. And so we do what we can. And I am grateful that I have the space in terms of the people around me who love me and give me this space to push things a little bit farther than a lot of other people do. And I hope that by my talking about these things, I can encourage people. I mean, the younger generations are always ready to go further, right? By my talking about these things, I can encourage other people to carve out the space to push things even further and to, you know, to really strive to, to give our children the absolute, you know, openness and, and fluidity that I think they deserve. 
Well, that's a great note to end on. Yeah. Amen to that. Really helpful. Yeah. Thank (laughs) you so much. Thank you. Okay. So does he, did he say, can I talk? Does he want to say something? Say something? What do you want to say? In the book, in the book, there was. Is that the book that you want to show them? In the book, see, she does want to wear dresses and she doesn't want to be a boy and she doesn't want to be a girl. She thinks she's a boy or a girl. Excellent. I'm going to get that book for my family. Thank you so much. Yeah. That was so great. Thank you. Oh, and I'm not tired. (laughs) That we can see, my friend. School in the morning. You're the only one. (laughs) (laughs) Ah, Okay. So one of the things we do is we ask, we like to remind ourselves to take care of ourselves as we're doing this great thinking and great work. So your answer can be any kind of self-care. And we usually ask it in the third person because it's easier sometimes to take care of other people. So I don't know who wants to go first. Lindsay, you want to go first? How are you going to take care of my friend Lindsay this week? Okay. So I have been doing a lot better the last couple of weeks of actually, of actually, I don't call it meditating, like stillness, sitting still and quiet and like following my thoughts. So kind of a meditation, kind of mindfulness. I've done it a few days a week for like 30, 40 minutes. And I'm going to keep doing that because it is, especially when I have some really intense thoughts, it helps so much. And I've learned that I have to do it for more than 15 minutes, more than 10 minutes. Like just doing it for five minutes doesn't work. I have to do it for a long period of time. So I'm going to keep doing that. That's great. How are you going to take care of Neela this week? I'm going to take care of Neela by trying to get more sleep. Today, I realized that my back was hurting, and I think it was just because I didn't sleep well last night, and I didn't sleep well last night because I'm in this pod situation, and this week, the pod was going to be at my house with five kids, and- You're talking about a learning pod, is that right? A learning learning pod, pod. yes. And I just was kind of stressed out about not having the house ready for the five kids, and I literally woke up at two in the morning and got up and cleaned. And I am going to try for the rest of the week to just- take time and sleep because my body needs it. Yeah. (laughs) And my mind. Yeah. And Lisa, how are you going to take care of Lisa this week? Well, so I already did my, my huge act of self-care by taking leave of absence at work. So I think for me, it's just been a bit of an emotional roller coaster since then. I've been like really grieving a little, not, I was going to say I've been really grieving a little bit. I've been grieving about losing that job and temporarily, I guess. Anyway, uh, I just want to remind myself through the ups and downs that I did make a decision to take care of myself and that it's important and that I should be proud of myself and Mm -hmm. gentle with myself. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you again, Neela. Is there anything you want to say about like how people can find you or follow you? I know you're on Twitter. You can follow me on Twitter at Neela Goshal. My Twitter feed is very work-related, so only occasionally do I express more personal things outside of um, my work kind of advocacy. My work is very interesting. So it is very interesting. I'm glad that I do the work I do. My article on feminist parenting is not unfortunately digitally available, but you can buy the book feminist parenting perspectives from Africa and beyond from Demeter press. And they have an amazing collection of feminist literature. So I encourage everyone to go to 
Demeter Press and just look at the books available, even if you don't buy the book that I have an essay in. Great. We'll share links to your your Twitter handle and to the book and the publishing group on our show notes and on our website. So thank you again so much. Yeah, go get some rest. It was such a great experience talking to you. Thank you so much. I was so glad to talk to you as well. Thanks so much for listening. We'd love to hear what you think about this topic. Our website is mommingwellfeminist.com. And you can find us on Facebook and Instagram at Momming While Feminist. Let's have each other's backs this week. And take care of yourself. Bye.